This is actually a fairly familiar story, but sometimes the familiar stories are the ones we need to pay extra attention to. Uh, I remember a few years ago, I was working actually with a guy, um, he's not, not a Christian guy, wouldn't profess to be a Christian guy. Um, he was actually mastering one of our, our Indelible Grace CDs graciously for us. He ended up not even charging us any money, which was amazing. Um, but I remember him, uh, we talked for a while during the, working on this project, and then we went broke, broke for lunch. And I remember him uh, asking me about this story of the prodigal son. He said, you know, that story has always bothered me. Uh, I just don't get it. How come this guy, you know, basically squanders his family's money, and then, you know, Christians, like, celebrate, like, this story in which this guy goes and squanders this money. And I thought, how fascinating like, here's a guy who's not grown up in church. He's not around, like, Christians all the time. And so he actually understands this story better than most Christians that I know. Because everybody that Jesus told this story to, um, the Pharisees and the, tax, uh, the Pharisees that were kind of milling around, complaining about Jesus, eating with sinners and tax collectors, which is what Luke 15, verses 1 and 2 says, were deeply offended by this story. It offended them. Uh, and most Christians, I think, really need to, to recapture that sense of why this story is offensive, why this story is shocking, because it really is a shocking story. It's one of those things where uh, we've maybe heard it so often that it just becomes too easy to think of ourselves. Um, I don't know how we think of ourselves. Do we think of ourselves as the older brother or the uh, tax collector the, or the uh, younger brother, the prodigal, or do we think of ourselves as needing to be like the father and being merciful to those who come back? I don't know. You know, Kenneth Bailey, who's kind of one of the world's experts on parables, talks about the parables as um, houses, like they're little houses that Jesus builds, and you need to find your place where you live in them. There's, there's different people will have a different place where this is really who I am and where I need to really live. And this is one of those parables where you need to find yourself in this parable. You're in this parable somewhere. Um, so let's read this story and then dig into it. We're actually going to talk more about the prodigal, uh, the younger son first, the first son, and then the older brother will do next week. So uh, let's, let's read this passage. It's in Luke 15. Uh, like I said, verses 1 and 2 say, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him, meaning Jesus, to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And then Jesus told him a parable. He actually tells him three parables. The first parable is about a guy who loses one of his sheep, and he drops everything to go and find it. The second parable is about a woman who has 10 silver coins. She loses one of them. She drops everything, goes out to find it, and then tells her friends to come and have a party because she's found her lost coin. And then the third parable here in Luke 15 starts at verse 11, and that's what we're looking at tonight. Jesus continued, which gives you the sense that these three parables are important to consider together, and we're going to do that. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, 
and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. We'll stop there. Let's pray together. Lord, we do ask that you would help us to understand this parable. Help us to find our place. Help us to be uh, astonished again by how huge your grace is. May it touch our hearts tonight. And to that end, we pray that you would send your spirit. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Like I say, this is a familiar story. Story that you probably have heard, probably heard sermons on this story. I don't know if I'll say anything new. That's not really the point. The point is for us to gather together, to sit under God's word, and to hear what he would have for us tonight. And I think the way we'll go at this is really to follow the parable, the order of the story. We don't need to kind of make up another order. First, we want to look at what the son does. What is the sin? What is the thing that this younger son does? What is the significance of this? Like I've told you before in other weeks, sometimes there are cultural background issues that are different between the Middle Eastern culture in which this story was first told in Jesus' day and between our own culture. And there are things going on in this story that we may miss. One of the first is that when this son says to his father, give me the estate, the share of the estate that is mine. Do you understand what he's saying to his father is, I wish you were dead. And from now on, you will be dead to me. In this culture, you don't get the inheritance early. You get the inheritance when the father dies. You don't get it early. So for this son to ask his father for the inheritance is not just to break a social taboo, though it certainly was that. It was highly inappropriate and shocking that a boy would do this sort of thing. Especially, you have to remember, this is not a postmodern society. This is a society that's a very shame-based, traditional culture. One of the greatest fears that you would have would be to bring shame and embarrassment to your family. So for this son to say to his father, give me this share of the estate, he's saying to his father, I wish you were dead. And then for him to be able to liquidate the estate and take the money and leave means that he's brought shame and offense to the whole village. Because real estate in the Middle East is passed down from generation to generation. Real estate transactions take years to accomplish. 
But this boy says, I don't care about the village and what is right and acceptable. I don't care about what's honoring to my father. In a, in, a, in a setting, in a religion where honor your father and mother is one of the big ten, right? And he says, I wish you were dead, and I'm going to liquidate the estate, and I'm going to take it now, and I'm going to go, right? So what you need to understand in the first place is he's not just breaking the rules. He is rupturing a relationship. And that's actually a very important thing for us to see. I think so many people misunderstand Christianity at this point. They think that when Christians talk about sin... A lot of people don't like that word, but they think when Christians are talking about sin, we're talking about sin, small s with an s on the end, little things that you do that are wrong. But what the Bible repeatedly tells us, and certainly in this story is teaching us, is that sin is rupturing a relationship. It's saying to God or to our Father, I wish you were dead. I don't want to have anything to do with you, at least not for the next little while. Oh, maybe I'll come back. You know, but when, I'm, when I've done what I want to do. But whenever we sin, we're saying to God, I don't want a relationship with you, at least not on your terms. I want to be in charge. I want to live the way I want to live. And that's exactly what this son does. Um, and, and so he, he goes out, and you know the story. He ends up being in a miserable predicament. I think there actually maybe is a little hint um, of God's mercy in the fact that he sends a famine. Because often God in his mercy sends these providential things that disrupt our plans. Especially when our plans involve running as far away from God as we possibly can. And wanting to have nothing to do with him. So the, the boy thinks he's got a good plan. He takes all the money, he liquidates it, he goes to a far off country. Presumably not a Jewish area because he ends up being in uh, hiring himself out. Actually, the NIV translation is a little weak. In the Greek, it says he literally glued himself to a foreigner. He attached himself to this foreigner, to this non-Jewish person, put all of his hope in what this person would be able to give him. And what does this guy do? He puts him uh, in a position in the farm feeding pigs. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but Jews don't eat pork right? It's against their, the, the food laws. And Jews do not farm pigs. A Jewish boy finding himself in a pig pen, wanting to be a pig, wishing that he could eat the food that the pigs were eating, is about the most dramatic way you could say that this kid's life has completely fallen apart. He couldn't be in a more miserable circumstances. Yet, he still hasn't given up hope. It's really interesting. Sometimes even when we're in the most desperate situations, we still think that we can work our way out of it. Now, this boy makes a plan. He says to himself, you know, even my, the, my father's hired men, it's interesting, now he wants to think of him as his father again, <laughs> right? When before he said, I have no father. You're not my father. I want the money. Now he wants to think of his father again. But he says, even my father's hired men have food to spare. So I know what I'll do. I'll go back to dad and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But note this, make me like one of your hired men. And do you know what he's, he's doing here? What he's basically asking or planning, plotting, is the opportunity to work off his debt. 
We know actually from other Jewish writings and whatnot that this would have been an acceptable thing for him to do, to come and to be able to work off his debt, to pay off his debt, and actually, even though he wouldn't be in the family, he at least could be brought back to a place of some social respectability. So he wants to come back and have an idea, uh, or he has this plan and this plot to be able to work off his debt. Even though like, he's got no hope in the world, but he still thinks that he can make demands upon his father. Isn't that amazing? Did you, did you note the language? He's going to go back and say, Father, make me like one of your hired men. It starts out sounding like he's very sincere, but as the speech progresses, you find that he actually is going to demand something. And I think this is so fascinating because I don't know about you, but I find sometimes even when I'm in the most desperate straits or when I'm seeing my sin, I still feel like I have bargaining power with God. Like I have this ability to, to demand that he treat me this way or that way. We do that. I've, I've known folks who've you know, seen their, a sense of their sin and how they don't really um, have anything that God uh, would be pleased with. In other words, they say, gosh, I realize I need to be in a relationship with God, and yet they still want to haggle with him or want to argue with him or say, you know, I want to be able to come to you, God, on my own terms. I remember talking with an old, old friend of mine once, and she was talking about how she didn't really want to come to God because it would seem like she was just desperate. And I was like, you know, what do you expect? Um, you, you, can't, you can't come to God in such a way that you can preserve all of your self-respect and dignity, right? It says, come ye sinners, is what we just sang. Not come ye respectable people who need a helping hand, right? And, and yet we still want to do that. We want to pretend. It's like guys that want to ask girls out on a date and pretend that they don't really care whether they're rejected. And so they say, well, you know, let's do lunch. And they try and make it as casual as possible so that it, it doesn't really seem, you know, like they're risking anything. You can't come to God that way. You don't come to God by saying, God, you know, I want to main, be able to maintain and, and pat myself on the back for all the good stuff that I've done. But I really could use some grace, too. That's not, that's not what coming to God is about. Coming to God is about collapsing on his mercy, as we'll see as this story tells us. But right here, here's what's so fascinating. What he plans is what I think so many people who grow up in church think Christianity is about. So many people think that what Christianity is about is about seeing, you know, getting caught. Oh, yeah, God, sorry, I did it again. Um, and then going back to him and making little deals. Um, in some traditions, this is called penance. In evangelical Protestant traditions, they don't usually use that word penance, but they have the concept, which is if I go to God and I say, God, I promise if you forgive me, if you get me out of this jam, I will never do this again. That's the way most people, most Christians I know, deal with God. Now, what's wrong with that picture? Well, what you're basically asking God to do is to forgive you based on your promise to not do it, do it again. But, of course, God knows that you're lying, you know, so you don't really have very much to stand on and, and haggle here. But that's so far from what true repentance is about. But what's interesting is that's exactly what the Pharisees thought repentance was about. At this point, where did I put my water? Um, at this point, yeah, maybe. hold on. 
at this point, the Pharisees hearing this story would have been happy. You know why? Do you remember back in verse 1? They're concerned that Jesus eats with sinners and tax collectors. In other words, they think Jesus is soft on sin. Sinners are comfortable around him. That shouldn't be. If you really are a holy person, if you really are a rabbi, if you really are a teacher, if you really are maybe even the Messiah, well, sinners and tax collectors should surely feel embarrassed to even be in your presence. So if these people like being around you, you probably are pretty soft on sin. That's what they think. But then Jesus tells this story, and they think, well, this is great. This is the kind of story that we like. This is the kind of story that these sinners and tax collectors need to hear. Because what they've done is they've said to God, I don't want to have anything to do with you. What the tax collectors have done, they've glued themselves to Rome. Do you know why tax collectors were so hated? It's because Rome occupied Jerusalem at this time. And the tax collectors basically were people who had won the bidding. See, the Romans would offer to the highest bidder the opportunity, the office of tax collector. And all you had to do was pay the amount of tax that Rome had set for that area in which you were now the tax collector, and you were allowed to charge whatever you wanted. In other words, if you were a tax collector, you were thieving and extorting your own people, fellow Israelites, and giving the money, some of it to Rome, some of it keeping for yourself. They were pretty despised people. If anybody had glued themselves to foreigners, to Gentiles, to non-Jews, it was them. So they're hearing this story, and Jesus is saying the kind of things they want him to say. If you're a sinner and a tax collector, your life is going to be miserable and wretched. And one day, things will come back to you, right? You'll get what's coming to you, right? Sounds like a good story. They like this story. But then, the story takes a turn, doesn't it? You see... Here's, here's what's interesting. All right, I've told you already about the son's solution to his problem. He thinks he can work things out. He makes this little plan. Um, but, but see what happens as the story goes on. So he makes this little plan. He says, I'm going to go back. I'm going to say, make me like one of your hired men. And as he goes back, it says, um, his father sees him from a long way off. And what does the father do when he sees him? What does he do? He says, it says here that um, he's filled with compassion. This is verse 20. He runs to his son, throws his arm around him, and kissed him. Now, uh, the the Greek actually is continually kisses him. He didn't just give him one kiss. He's continually kissing him. Now, what's significant about this? Here's what you need to understand. I know that you've probably seen various pictures of this story Um, Rembrandt and others, and they usually get the cultural background wrong. Because in Middle Eastern villages, farmers don't live out in the countryside on their farms. They live in the village. So it's not like he's sitting, you know, you always see like a picture of like a farmhouse, and there's like hills and this pastoral scene, and a kid like coming over the horizon, and the father running across the field. That's not the picture. The picture is the son is coming down the village main street. Everybody in the village knows who he is. It's a small town. The the kid has offended the whole town. And you know, there's not a lot to do in these sort of towns. 
you know that as soon as this kid like starts coming down the street, everybody's following, wanting to see what's going to happen. And what happens is the father, who's sort of a long way off, sees his son coming and runs to him. Now, what's the significance of that? Well, in the Middle Eastern culture, great men, dignified Middle Eastern men, do not run. There's two reasons they don't run. One is, to run, you have to hike up your robes, or some, some uh, translations say, hike up your skirts. You have this long robe. You can't run in it. You have to hike it up. You have to tur- you know, stick it into your belt. That's what it's like, gird up your loins, is that idea that you, you hike up your skirt. You expose your legs. Middle Eastern men do not expose their legs, particularly middle-aged Middle Eastern men. And not only that, they don't run. Aristotle actually said at one point that a man's dignity is seen in how slow he walks. Now, that, that's a cultural thing that's not part of our culture at all. But for this man to hike up his skirts, expose his legs, and run, what it does is it takes all the shame and the humiliation that his son is feeling, the contempt of the crowd, and it diverts all of it to the father. In other words, the father is offering an astonishing example of sacrificial love. This son who said to him, I wish you were dead. When the father sees him, he says, I wish all of the humiliation that you're enduring right now were taken from you and put on me. I don't want you to have to bear it. Oh, I know you deserve it. But I want to take it. That's what he does right? Now, this is what's fascinating. You know, Kenneth Bailey, who I said is this, you know, expert on the parables, who also taught his entire career uh, in the Middle East, says that what's interesting about this parable is that most Christians don't understand this story. See, look, look what goes on here. What happens when the son sees his father do that? Look what happens to his speech. It changes. Look at verse 21. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But what's missing? Make me like one of your hired men. It's missing. Here's what's going on. So many people misunderstand this parable because they think that when he's in the pig pen... And it says that he comes to his senses or comes to himself. They think that's the point at which he's repented. But it's not. That's the point at which he decides that he needs to take a different approach to taking care of himself. It's only when he sees the father's sacrificial love taking the humiliation upon himself that his demand to be able to work off his debt disappears. This is when repentance actually really happens. What happens in the field is what most Christians think repentance is. What happens in the pigsty? Um, Oh, God, forgive me. Give me a chance, and I promise I'll never let you down again. But what happens when his father's kissing him is what true Christianity is about. What Kenneth Bailey says is fascinating is that the difference between Islam and Christianity is this parable. See, Allah is merciful to those who come to him. But Christianity teaches something very different. It teaches that God is the one who runs 
to his traitorous people. God is the one who takes all the humiliation that we deserved upon himself. Unfortunately, most Christians have more of an Islamic understanding of this parable than they do a Christian one, and a more of an Islamic idea of God's love than a Christian one. And we think that it's up to us to prove to God that we deserve his love, that it's up to us to, to weep over our sin enough that we could show him that we're really sincere and that we're worth you know, giving some grace to. You know, uh, my wife reminded me of this, this great hymn, Rock of Ages. You know this hymn by Augustus Toplady? Um, there's this great verse. I don't know if you know this or not, but the original title for that hymn uh, was A Living and a Dying Prayer for the Holiest Believer on Earth. It's quite a mouthful. <laughs> a living and a dying prayer for the holiest believer on earth. That what Augustus Toplady is trying to teach us in that hymn is this is the prayer you need to become a Christian. It's the prayer you need to live as a Christian. It's the prayer you need to die as a Christian, even if you're the holiest believer on earth. And you remember this verse that says, Could my tears forever flow? Could my zeal no respite know? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Let me help you unpack uh, unpack that. Could my tears forever flow? Even if I could weep over my sin the way I should, it wouldn't help God forgive me one bit. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God needs your tears to forgive you? He doesn't. The only reason God forgives you is because Jesus lived and died in your place. And he's filled with compassion. You don't earn it by your tears. You don't earn it by being fired up for Jesus. And that's what Augustus Toplady captures in the next line where he says, could my zeal no respite know? That means, could my, could my being fired up for Jesus not ever know a rest? It would always be fired up for Jesus, even if that were the case. All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. That's Christianity. That's Christianity. That's what the prodigal begins to understand. The father does the unthinkable. And it it changes everything. And then I love this. It says that he keeps on kissing his son. Look at at what else he gets. Because here's what's important. He doesn't just get forgiveness. He doesn't just get forgiveness. The father keeps on kissing him. Um, the, the, uh, The father, not only that, the father restores him. As a trusted son, that's the significance of the father's robe being given to him. It clothes him with honor. The ring that talks about here, do you know what the ring is for? The ring is the signet ring. The way you sealed contracts in this culture was you took the family ring with the family crest, and when you put hot wax on a document, you stuck that ring in it, and it was the way that you were able to sign the family name to a contract. And he gives this son who wasted the half of the estate, he gives him the ring. Not because he deserves it. Do you see what a picture this is? He gives him sandals. Why are sandals? Because sandals show dignity and honor. That he doesn't have to, you know, traipse around in a, you know, understand the Middle East villages, you know, animals, farm animals are walking through the streets. They don't have sanitation departments, right? Feet get pretty nasty. But he wants to cover that. And, 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 and so there's this honor and dignity even in that. In other words, what's going on here is the prodigal gets treated the way he would have been treated if he had never left, 
and if he had perfectly loved his father. Do you understand the significance of this? What Jesus is teaching is the welcoming love of the father. The love of the father that goes and and chases down prodigals, brings them to a place and sees them as trusted sons who've always loved perfectly. This is what Christians mean when they talk about the difference between forgiveness and righteousness. I hope you understand this. Christianity teaches that that what it means to, to come to God is you don't just get forgiven, but you get credit for everything that God, that Jesus, excuse me, Jesus did. If you're to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, which Jesus says we are, it's more, you need more than just being forgiven for that. Because as soon as you're forgiven, the next day you still need to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. But what Christianity teaches is that you get credit for the way Jesus loved God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength. When God says about Jesus, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. If you're a Christian, he says that about you. And there's a powerful picture of that in this parable. This son, who is a traitor, who has said to his father, I I wish you were dead, is now being treated like somebody who had perfectly loved his father and honored him the whole time. It's it's like like the, the, the sin had never happened. And he's a trusted son, brought back into the family again. Amazing. And then the father throws a party. Now here's what's fascinating. The party is not for the son. The older son doesn't understand that, and and I'll talk about this some more next week. But the party is for the father. It's just like the other two parables, and this is why it's important to see all three of them together. In each of those parables, there's a party, but the party is to celebrate the one who has recovered the lost thing. And so it is in this parable. The father wants to celebrate that he, by his sacrificial love, has recovered his son. And what Jesus, part of what Jesus is saying in this parable to the Pharisees is that, listen, you need to join the party. When I'm eating with these sinners and tax collectors, I'm, I'm, I'm expressing to them the party. God, the Father, is setting up this banquet. He's inviting these people in who don't deserve to be there, and God is thrilled. It magnifies and glorifies His grace and His gospel that these people that have no reason to expect that God would love them are brought into the, the, the relationship of being trusted sons and daughters. Celebrate with God the Father. It's His party. Don't you dare, don't you dare turn up your nose at the party. In other words, what Christians should be about is about throwing great gospel parties to the Father's glory and inviting everybody to come be part of it. That's, man, if you thought about evangelism that way, don't you think it would change the way you do it or the way you think about it? If it was like, you know, guys, come along. I want to I celebrate the goodness of my Father and His glorious grace. It's worth, it's worth shouting about. It's worth celebrating. Let's, let's have a party. It, no, we, see, most of us think evangelism is sort of this drudgery kind of task that we have to do so that God will get off our back. That's not what Jesus pictures here. It's a great party to celebrate the Father's glory. So let me just close with a couple, a couple applications here. I got a lot of them written down. I'm not going to go through all of them. But I'm going to hit on one or two. 
Have you seen the sacrificial love of Jesus? I, I don't mean do you just know that Jesus is the Son of God and that he died on a cross to save our sins in general terms. I'm not asking you can you assent to all those sort of things, but has the sacrificial love of Jesus ever melted you? Has the continual kisses of the Father just overwhelmed you? One of my favorite quotes is by this old Baptist preacher, Charles Spurgeon, lived back in the 1800s. Listen to this. He says this. When I regarded God as a tyrant, I thought my sin a trifle. In other words, I didn't think my sin was a big deal when I thought God was a tyrant. But when I knew him to be my father, then I mourned that I could ever have kicked against him. When I thought God was hard, I found it easy to sin. But when I found God so kind, so good, so overflowing with compassion, I smote upon my breast to think that I could ever have rebelled against one who loved me so and sought my good. I think that's exactly right. It's not until you see the sacrificial love of God that you really will come to hate your sin because sin is this rupturing of a relationship. And as long as you think that God is distant and he just lays down rules, you'll find it fairly easy to turn away and to run away from that. But when you understand that he's your father who demonstrates this kind of sacrificial love, it changes things. And it doesn't just change things to come into a relationship with God. This is what you continually need to be reminded of to live as a Christian. You don't necessarily need people always telling you all the things you're doing bad. You need to see all the time the sacrificial love of God because that's the only thing that will melt your heart. Um, in the gospel, you know, we get the robe. We get the ring. We're treated as trusted sons and daughters. God does not want you living and thinking like you're an employee. God does not want you to think that. If you think of yourself as an employee of God, rather than a son and a daughter of God, then pray that he would open your eyes to see what Christianity is really about. Because it's, it's not about being an employee. It's not about God just sort of getting you on his side. It's about being a son and a daughter, a trusted son and a daughter. He wants us to know that we are beloved children, like that call to worship. Behold, whenever the Bible says behold, idu is the Greek. It means look at this, take note. Behold what manner of love the Father has shown to us that we would be called children of God. Let's pray together.